0: If you would open to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I think I'll start here in verse 16 or 17, which says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine for For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you this time that we can uh, just look to history and look to your word, and I pray you give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. So I'm I'm doing church history, and I've come to a point, um, it's a, another old, old letter, it's called Clement of Rome, um, but as I was studying Clement of Rome, it has a lot to do with uh, church elders, and so I thought this would actually be a neat jumping off point, because where we are as a church, to take a look at biblical eldership, at the same time as we're looking at um, some church history. I have not consulted Dan or Pastor Hovey, but just from our discussions, I think we are pretty well aligned. But if I do say something off Dan, feel free to rebuke me or whatever. Um, but I, I think we're pretty well aligned on things, on what the Word of God teaches. Um, but I'm going to use this Clement of Rome as an opportunity to, to look at that. Um, so the, the interesting thing, there, there are a couple of very, very old first-century letters, extra-biblical letters. One was the Didache, which we looked at uh, before Christmas. Um, and then the second one is this Clement of Rome. And um, it, like, like I said, it has a lot to do with church eldership. And um, what is, in saying that, recognizing that church leadership is actually a very controversial subject, isn't it? In fact, many uh, denominational divisions happen because of the views on church leadership. Um, but this letter has to do with with church leadership, and um, so well, let me let me just dive into it. It is believed that this letter was penned by the Clement of Philippians four three. Philippians four three says. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So it is believed that this letter was written by that particular Clement, a companion of Paul. It was written to um, the, the Corinthian church. And what is so interesting about this It is from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. Now, what happened with the church in Rome over the centuries? Who, what church is headquartered in Rome? By the Pope, the the Roman Catholic Church. But when you read this letter, it's not from a Pope. In fact, it is not even from Clement. It is from the church in Rome. Clement's name is not even... uh, Mentioned in the letter, um, but it is attributed to him. Let me just read a little bit here from uh, some church history work. It says Who the Clement was to whom these writings are ascribed cannot with absolute certainty be determined. The general opinion is that he is the same as the person of that name referred to in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 4 3. The writings themselves contain no statement as to their author. The first, and by far the longer of them, there were two letters actually, um, simply purports to have been written in the name of the church at Rome to the church in Corinth. But in the catalog of contents prefixed to the manuscript, they are both plainly attributed to one Clement. So this letter, there's only one manuscript that's ever been found, and it was a group of manuscripts. And in that group of manuscripts, there's a catalog, it's like an index, And it calls it, in the index, Clement of Rome. But the letter itself does not um, say. um, But there's a few other reasons why it's attributed to him. Let's see. Um, So, and and the judgment of most scholars that, in regard to the first epistle, at least this statement is correct, and that it is to be regarded as an authentic production of the friend and fellow worker of St. Paul. This belief may be traced to an early period in church history. Um, It is found in the writings of Eusebius and Origen. I've mentioned a few times in the past, Eusebius was a church history around in the 4th century, so he attributes it to Clement and so does Origen. Um, The internal evidence also tends to support this opinion. The doctrine style and manner of thought are all in accordance with it, so that although as has been said, positive certainty cannot be reached on the subject, uh, we may with great probability conclude that we have in this epistle a composition of that Clement who was known to us from Scripture as having been an associate of the great apostle. Um, so its, it's dating uh, is not exactly sure, but it could be, range from around 68 A.D., to uh, the late first century. Um, It is clear from the writing itself that it was composed soon after some persecution of the church in Rome. Um, The only question is whether uh, we look at the persecution of Nero or the persecution of Domitian. There's two times where there was great persecution in Rome, if it was Nero, it could be as early as 68. If it was Domitian, which most people genuinely believe that's the persecution um, it's talked about, it was it would put it around 96 AD. But still first century, very, very early in the church. It's actually a beautiful letter that um, if you look right here, I put the, the CCEL.org. Um, that is a uh it's it's like a library. Of ancient historical documents, and you can go in there and search all sorts of things, and so that's where I pulled uh, the copy that I'm referring to from lots of other interesting things in that document. Um, So the interesting thing, it is written from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth, Corinth, rebuking them for kicking their elders out. (laughs) Um, This is after Paul had already written two letters, right? First and second Corinthians to the church in Corinth. And it appeared they the church cleaned up and and become became much more biblical. You remember there was some bad stuff going on in Corinth, and Paul had some heavy rebukes for them. Well, the church um, did well for a while, but then went downhill again, and some young people rose up and tried to kick the elders out. And so that's what this letter is written about. And the interesting thing is. Like I said, it's from the church leadership in Rome, not any one particular, not a one pope. It's just written from the church elders to the church elders, and it's written as equals. And so what happened with the Catholic church? You've got this pope, you've got this hierarchy, the entire church is controlled from Rome. You don't see that in this letter. You don't get that feeling at all. It's very much they're equals, and they're saying, hey, you're brothers, y'all need to do what's right. And that's, that's what you get when you read this letter. Um, it says, the, the epistle was held in very great esteem by the early church. The account given of it by Eusebius is as follows. Eusebius said, there is one acknowledged epistle of this Clement, who he had just um, referred to as a friend of Paul. He says, great and admirable, which he wrote in the name of the church of Rome to the church at Corinth, Sedition having then arisen in the, in the latter church, we are aware of this epistle has been publicly read in very many churches, both in old times and also in our own day. So that's what Eusebius said, it was around the fourth century. Um, it begins like this, the, the introduction, the church of God which sojourns at Rome to the church of God sojourning at Corinth to them that are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. It's interesting. You kind of get a Pauline feel to it. And you think, I think this guy did hang out with Paul some and he, it, you kind of get a similar um, flow as to the way Paul wrote when you read it. Um. So one of one of the great things you see very clearly, you see salvation by grace through faith in it. And again, the Roman Catholic Church uh, essentially perverted that doctrine. Um, but you you very clearly see it. Now, um, anybody, Mr. Bogner, maybe you have heard of uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman? Anybody familiar with the Catholic Church? John Henry Cardinal Newman? He was actually an Anglican who converted to Catholicism. Um, John Henry Cardinal Newman had a saying, and uh, when he converted to being a Roman Catholic, he says, to go deep into church history is to cease to be Protestant. That's what he said. Um, I believe quite the opposite. I believe to go deep into church history is to cease to be Catholic, but what is so interesting, does anybody know what happened in Catholic Church in 1870? So, John Henry Cardinal Newman was in the 1800s. Anybody? 1870 was the first Vatican Council, which defined the Catholic doctrine known as papal infallibility. It says the Pope is infallible, right? Whatever he says. Now, I have a hard time, especially with the current Pope. If you know anything about Pope Frankie Francis, this guy is far extreme liberal and much more than previous popes have been. And you got to think, well, if he's infallible, was <laughs> the other guy? Because they're not lining up. Um, but in that Vatican Council is when they defined papal infallibility. What is so interesting is John Henry Cardinal Newman, he preached against papal infallibility. He did not agree. That was, it was debated in the Catholic Church And he said, no, no, no. but And what was he doing? He was actually looking at church history. Now, he shut up after that (laughs) for some reason. When the church says the Pope is infallible, John Henry Cardinal Newman quit, quit talking about it. But I find that ironic that he was the one that said to look deep into church history is to cease to be Protestant. Because he knew when you looked deep into church history, you didn't see an infallible Pope. And in this letter, you don't even see a Pope. There was a plurality of elders leading the church in Rome sadly anybody ever read norman geisler you heard of norman geisler norman geisler, he was a, he was a good apologist he did some good work however norman geisler led a uh, he was over the southern evangelical seminary and the patron saint of southern evangelical seminary was uh, thomas aquinas thomas aquinas was a catholic and the reason he he liked Aquinas, is he, he wrote a lot on philosophy. And um, sadly, what happened at Southern Evangelical Seminary is there were something like 24 um, uh, faculty and students who left Southern Evangelical Seminary and became Catholic. And it was, yeah, I think, well, they were studying Aquinas. It was a Roman Catholic, right? And um they uh, uh, several of them got together and wrote a book called "Evangelical Exodus." And they quote John Henry Cardinal Newman over and over that that statement in there. Um, and while Geisler did some good work, he uh, he had a blind spot there, I believe. And um, unfortunately, he it, it caused a number of Protestants to walk away from the Protestant faith and embrace Roman Catholicism. Uh, Actually, really interesting, I was flying to um, uh, Denver a few years ago, and I happened to have a Christian book I was reading on something, Um, and uh, a guy comes and sits next to me, and he sees what I'm reading. He says, are you going to ETS? ETS is the Evangelical Theological Society. (laughs) It's a lot of these elitist, elitist uh, in the world of uh, big Christianity, Big Eva. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, I didn't even know anything about it. Um, uh, but he uh, he was a professor at HBU under William Lane Craig. And uh, we get to talking, and he's a Roman Catholic. He had converted. He's a professor at HBU, Houston Baptist University. Um, so th- it's actually, there's been a movement, and I, that's one thing I, reason I think it's so important to to really look deeply at some of these things because um, the Roman Catholic Church does not have history on their side. They will tell you that, but they, remember the word I use, anachronistically? They often read into things that happened in the past and call it Catholicism, but it's not. And this is very clearly, um, does not uphold the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church the way it is today. So anyway, I just, I found that interesting um, and just a little bit of apologetical work. If you if you deal with with Roman Catholics any at all, it's good to know some of these things. Um, we had a very interesting conversation, and <laughs> I hope I made him think a little bit. Um, but uh, anyway, so if you're sending your children to HBU, realize you might not be getting complete Baptist <laughs> theology there. Um, so, but I wanted to take a look at this. Uh, um view on eldership. And Dan, I don't know if you heard me as as you were walking in. So because this letter addresses eldership so much, our church is led by plurality of elders. Um, But I don't know, has anybody even studied why we're a plurality of elders? Anybody talked about it? And just where we are right now as a church, I thought it would be a good jumping off point to, to look at the biblical reasoning for why our church is led by plurality of elders. And I mentioned, Dan, before you walked in, that uh, church leadership is a very controversial subject, and many, you know, many denominations um, are defined by their division over uh, church leadership. I believe we have a very biblical eldership here. I believe it has the the right uh, doctrine on that. Um, however, there could be some nuances, Dan. If I say something wrong, I already tell you that you just get up and slap me or whatever. Um, I uh, this book right here. This is the one on deacons, Alexander Strauch. He wrote a couple of books. This is Minister of Mercy, the New Testament deacon. He also wrote a book. It looks almost exactly like it on eldership, but my only copy is on Kindle. So here's the book on on church eldership. Um, They're both really good. I I was appointed a deacon a number of years ago and was given this book to read on, on deaconship. And after I read it, I went and and got the eldership one because I I thought it was really good and um but uh so uh, some of the things I'm pulling from Alexander Strache's work um let's see uh, there's two words for elders uh, uh elder or bishop in the Greek language and you see up here um you, it's interesting the Greek word for elder is presbyteros presbyteros and where the Presbyterian Church gets its name. And then the second one, which is uh, translated sometimes bishop, sometimes overseer, um, is Episcopos, which the Episcopalian Church gets its name. Um, They appear to be used synonymously in the New Testament. And you can see that from uh, these two verses up here in Acts 20, which says um, in verse 17, when they first, he says, and from... Miletus, he sent to you, uh, Ephesus, and called the elders. That's presbyteros of the church. And then, as you keep reading, you get down to verse twenty-eight. He says, "Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers." Um, that word "overseers" is also translated bishop. It's the same Greek word episkopos. So he's calling them elders, and he's calling them bishops. Or over, it's it's the same so they appear to be synonymously used there. So when you read the pastoral epistles, which gives the qualifications for elders, it it normally uses the word bishop, or in in your King James it'll say bishop, um, but it's that episkopos, which is also translated overseer, and they seem to be used synonymously there. Um, A a few verses, going to go through these, I just put them up there if you can read them or not, but just talk about some of the Um, the New Testament uh, biblical references to a plurality of elders, Um, and I'll I'll just go through some of these, and this is, I'm getting it again from Strach's work. He says, the elders of the church in Jerusalem united with the 12 apostles to deliberate over doctrinal controversy. That's in chapter 15, and like the apostolate the elders uh, comprised a collective leadership body. So over and over in chapter 15, you see this where it says, and the apostles and elders. And you see that multiple times in chapter 15. In James chapter 5, he says, James, um, James instructed the sick believer to call for the elders, which is plural, of the church, which is singular. And you see that over and over, elders, plural, church, singular. So you see a group of elders leading a single church. Um, but there in James 5, and, and he's sick among you, let him call the elders of the church, and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then in Acts uh, 14, At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he appointed a council of elders for each newly founded church. Uh, 14.23, And when they had ordained them elders, again plural, in every church, singular, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And you see that a lot, Paul going around appointing elders of the church. Um, it was obviously a point an important aspect of his ministry that the church was led by a good group of, of men. Um, and then let's see. First Timothy five, seventeen. Uh, It says, when passing near the city of Ephesus during a hurried trip to Jerusalem, Paul summoned the elders of the church, not the pastor, to meet for a final farewell and exhortation. That's in Acts uh, 20. It says, the church church in Ephesus was under a pastoral care of a council of elders. You see in 1 Timothy 5, 17, demonstrates beyond question that a plurality of elders led and taught the church in Ephesus. And that says, let the elders that rule well, this is what I opened with, the elders that rule well be counted of double honor, Um, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And then in Philippians 1, um, when Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, he greeted the overseers, that's plural, and deacons, Um. So again, that interchanging the words, uh, elder and uh, and overseer, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Again, bishops being that episkopos, which is also in some places translated overseer. Let's see. Um, a few other uh, areas. Um, at both the beginning and end of Paul's ministry, he appointed or instructed others to appoint a plurality of elders to care for the churches he founded and established. See this in Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5. According to the Titus 1.5 passage, Paul did not consider a church to be fully developed until it had functioning, qualified elders. For this cause, I left you in Crete, that you should have set in order the things that are wanting and ordained elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So here he is. It was important for Paul that they set up this plurality of elders to lead the church. And then um, Peter, when writing to the churches scattered throughout the five Roman provinces of Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia and Asia, and Bithynia in northwestern Asia Minor, you see that from 1 Peter 1.1. Peter exhorted the elders to pastor the flock. That's 1 Peter 5.1. This indicates that Peter knew that the elder structure of the government was the standard practice of the churches. So I hope you can see that. This, this is the, the whole of the New Testament. This is what you see over and over through the New Testament is a plurality of elders leading the church. And I believe when Pastor Hovey brought that teaching in, he brought in the correct teaching. And again, that's, it's a controversial subject because many churches aren't led that way. In fact, a lot of Baptist churches are congregational led, right? Um, and then some of them, you get this big hierarchy of, of, of leadership like the Presbyterian church. But um, just reading through the New Testament, you see this over and over that a plurality of elders is leading the church. Um, a little bit on the purpose um, Paul calls the elders. Do you have a question? You what know, I've noticed is a lot of the churches are led by deacons yeah. that operate the same like way. Like elders, the yeah. They kind of get at least the name a little backwards that there'll be a deacon board which kind of runs things. Um, and uh, actually in Stotja's book he talks a lot about that, that um, he, he kind of gives actually a, a concession that whatever you call your leaders, um, he, he admonishes you to try to be biblical in your language, but sometimes there's negative connotations toward different words that, for one reason or another, he says be biblical whatever you call them. You know, if they call them deacons, well, it's not really the New Testament language, but are they operating in a, in a biblical fashion um, you know, that's, that's one thing that some churches need to struggle with. And if, if that negative connotation to the word elder, you know, maybe you don't want it because it's going to upset people, but are you operating biblically? It's, uh, anyway, but that's a good point. Um, the purpose of elders, it, they're often called shepherds, right? And when you think of a shepherd, you're thinking of someone who is watching over a flock of sheep, who is making sure they're fed, who's protecting them from wild beasts, um, and that is the primary um, role of the elders That's that you see. Um, shepherd elders must be watchful and prayerful. They must be aware of changing issues both in society and the church. They must continuously educate themselves, especially in holy scriptures, diligently guard, they must diligently guard their own spiritual walk with the Lord, and always pray for the flock and its individual members. That was uh, from Strach's book. He also says, many churches and denominations that once stood for sound orthodox doctrine and life now reject every major tenet of the Christian faith and condone the most deplorable moral practices conceivable. I mean, you see that, right? Many churches have completely gone off the deep end and why? Because their elders were not guarding the flock. They were allowing unbiblical things. I, I'll give you an example. When I was in uh, college, my last summer in college, I went out to be a camp counselor at Camp Peniel, which is out near Marble Falls. Um, it's a Baptist camp. Um, sweet man and woman that ran the camp. Um, did a lot of good. Saw a lot of children coming to know the, the Lord and uh, had, a, had a great time. But while I was there, they allowed a man to come in, and he was a college professor, an English professor, and he was helping out doing things, and they decided to let him do a Bible study. And I went to it one time, and I was like, what in the world? It was not biblical at all. This guy was a very much a liberal uh, Christian. Have you ever read, you, you remember J. Machen, Dre Gresham Machen? Machen? Um, He wrote a book a number of years ago called um, Christianity and Liberalism. And his synopsis of the whole book is liberal Christianity is not Christianity. It is a different religion. And that's that's what I was seeing. And unfortunately, that camp went way down after that. That guy, they allowed him to come in, and he devoured the flock. And even though that wasn't a church, though we did have church, as as all the counselors gathered every Sunday, and we had church and the, the leader of the camp... Was the pastor of that church. But that whole camp went down and it's under complete different leadership. I don't know if it's biblical anymore now, but he, he really caused much division and he was teaching false teaching. And that's what's happened in so many denominations is that the elders did not protect the flock and they allowed false teachers to come in. So again, that's one of the major uh, roles as a shepherd. In the end, uh, Stotch says, in the end, every local church is responsible to teach its people. The meaning of the terms it uses to describe its spiritual leaders, whether it be elders, overseers, ministers, preachers, or pastors, biblical sensitive churches, church leaders will insist on the terminology they use represents and accurately, rep, as accurately as possible, the original biblical terms and concepts of the New Testament eldership. So, again, kind of on what, uh, Glenn, what Glenn was talking about there. Um, Let's see. So a a couple of passages, I'll just read these up here uh, from 1 Peter 5, 2. The elders which are among you, I exhort you, whom I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of ready of a ready mind, and then Acts twenty, the same idea here. He says, "Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over uh, over that the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood." So you see this idea of feeding the flock. Um, and then, as you look through uh, Titus and 1 Timothy, the pastoral epistles, which give the qualifications for elders and deacons, you see that same concept. Um, let's see. Uh, well, there the are three ideas here feeding the flock, which is in preaching and teaching, guarding the flock as protecting against um, false teachers. I'll just be a little bit candid. So, when the elders asked me to teach, I have a little bit different doctrine on, on some things. And Pastor Hovey says, you can teach, but don't teach on that. I said, okay. You know what? That's, that's Pastor Hovey guarding the flock as he sees, uh, as he interprets scripture, right? So, and as being under him, it is my duty to not um, contradict things he, he believes. So that's guarding the flock, and that's what elders should be doing, right? Um, and then managing the church. You see this in a few places. First um, Thessalonians five twelve, which says, "And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord." That uh, that actually again is is um, can be translated uh, to maintain that over you, um, and even the word in First Timothy, the um, where it talks about elders being double honor, says that rule over you. That word is also translated to maintain or to manage. So the church elder is to feed the flock, to guard the flock, and to manage the church. So any any other thoughts on that? I I mean, I'm encouraged just as this church is doing the very best to do what's right in church leadership. I believe it's being very biblical. And so, Dan, any, any, any thoughts on that for you? Great job. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well I, I again I think it's important and you know in all that you do we want to be biblical, right? And far too many churches get off in unbiblical things that um and, and even in church leadership. And again, they then you cause division and problems. So I want to uh make sure we're we're studying the word of God and following it the best we can. So all right, um I'm gonna that's all the actual slides, but now i 'm going to dive into a little bit here on this letter from a uh, of Clement of Rome, and uh, it 's got some really good stuff in it. Um, like I said I, that it was written from the the church in Rome to the church in Corinth because the Church in Corinth had booted out their elders. Um, so I just want to read a few things from it that I find interesting. It begins um It's divided up into little chapters. They're really just paragraphs, but he says, Owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events which have happened to ourselves, we feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us, and especially to the shameful and detestable sedition utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. For whoever dwelt even for a short time among you and did not find your faith to be as, as fruitful, a virtue as it was firmly established, who did, who did not admire the sobriety and moderation of your godliness in Christ, who did not proclaim the magnificence of your Habitual hospitality, and who did not rejoice over your perfect and well-grounded knowledge? So he's saying, "But you had a great thing going; you were doing great, but now these guys have come in and just turned things upside down." And so we know that it had to be in that period after Paul had written First and Second Corinthians um, to this period, because Paul had some negative things to say too, right? But apparently they cleaned things up and became a very a good church. But then things went downhill after that. And you know what? We see that in our day and age, right? We see churches that are very strong and all of a sudden they crater. I don't know how often we see them come back, but but hopefully that does happen. Um, let's see. Chapter 2. Um, chapter 2 is more exhortation of talking about the good things that they did. Uh, chapter 3... He says, every kind of honor and happiness was bestowed upon you and then was fulfilled that which was written, my beloved, eat and drink and was enlarged and became fat and kicked. (laughs) Hence flowed emulation and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and disorder, war and captivity. So the worthless rose up against the honorable, those of no reputation against such as were renowned the foolish against the wise, the young against those advanced in years. For this reason, righteousness and peace are now far departed from you inasmuch as everyone abandons the fear of God and has become blind in his faith. Neither walks in the ordinances of his appointment nor acts apart, becoming a Christian, but he walks after his own wicked lust, resuming the practice of an unrighteous and ungodly envy by which death itself entered into the world. It's a pretty, I find it interesting. He began with, look, you were doing well, but then you became large and fat, right? And, I mean, that's what we see people doing well and they get relaxed and they stop guarding themselves. They stop being true to the word of God and they get lazy. And then what happens? Evil comes in, false teaching, things go bad, and, um, and he has some not very nice words to say to him. <laughs> um, chapter four is titled "No less evils has arisen from the same source in the most recent times." The martyrdom of Peter and Paul. So this is a little bit interesting. Have you ever heard? Tradition says Paul traveled to Spain and preached the gospel. And uh, Paul was imprisoned seven times. Have you ever heard that? I've heard people say tradition says that. Uh, you don't see Paul being in prison seven times in Scripture. You, you see it like three, three times, I think. Um, so, but people will say sometimes tradition says Paul traveled all the way to Spain and preached the gospel, and he was imprisoned seven times. It actually comes from this letter. That's where the tradition came from. Um, so, just read a little bit about this. Uh, so he goes into this letter goes into giving examples from Scripture, but he says. Um, It says, but not to dwell upon ancient examples, let us come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let us take the noble examples furnished in our own generation. So again, he's a contemporary of Peter and Paul. He knows Paul. Verse um, ten says, "Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of our church have been persecuted and put to death." Let us set before our eyes the illustrious apostles Peter, through unrighteous envy endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the, re, the reward of patient endurance, after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee, and stoned. After preaching both in the east and west, he gained illustrious, He gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the, the prefix. So what is the extreme limit of the West? Most people say it was probably Spain because that was kind of the limit. Could have been England of the Roman Empire, um, but... The tradition, they believe Paul had preached way out west in in Europe. Um, So anyway, that's a little interesting. Um, Let's see. There begin a couple of uh, sections on repentance. Um, Repentance is another area that is not heavily sought after today and frowned upon. Um, but you know what I find in Scripture? You know, what's the first message Jesus recorded that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew? You know what his first word is? Repent. (laughs) Repent, lest something worse happen to you. Um, And then when you look at the Great Commission as recorded in the book of Luke, he says, go preach repentance unto all the world. So I find that interesting and today repentance is not um, is sometimes frowned upon and even scoffed at um, but repentance is a very biblical concept and it just means turning from sin right turning around going the other direction turning from sin i think you repent of your sin and you turn to faith in Christ you about face as you as you turn to Christ Great Commission, make disciples. Right, which is, is Timothy, I mean, which is Matthew, right? That's a Great Commission according to Matthew. But when you, it's interesting when you read it in Luke, he says, go and preach repentance. Um, they're both right. Before you become a disciple. Exactly, right, right. Repentance comes first. Um, God preached when he, before Jesus. Came. Right, preached a message of repentance, yeah. Um, so anyway, he, he, this letter encourages repentance here. He says, These things, beloved, we write unto you, not merely to admonish you of your duty, but also to remind ourselves. Uh, this is, I was mentioning that they saw themselves as equals. Listen to how they, they do this. It says, to, Not merely to admonish you of your duty, but also to remind ourselves. For we are struggling on the same arena, and of the same conflict is assigned bo- to both of us. So they're saying, look, we're, we're just like y'all, we struggle with the with same, similar type of issues, but so they're admonishing them as brothers. They're not saying, we have this authority over you, you must go, you know, change. They're they're writing to them as brothers. So again, that's not what you see in the Catholic Church today in Rome. In Rome, obviously, it's this whole monarch monarchical system. Um, he says, wherefore let us give up vain and fruitless cares and approach to the glorious and venerable rule of our holy calling let us attend to what is good pleasing and acceptable in the sight of him who formed us let us look steadfastly to the blood of christ and see how precious that blood is to god which having been shed for our salvation has set the grace of repentance before the whole world let us turn to it let us let us turn to every age that has passed, and learned that from generation to generation the Lord has granted a place of repentance to all such as would be converted unto him. Noah preached repentance as and as many as listened to him were saved. Jonah proclaimed destruction to the Ninevites, but they repenting of their sins, uh, propitiated God by prayer and obtained salvation, although they were aliens to the covenant of God. so again, repentance is is very important, and he's encouraging them to repent. Um, In later chapters, he goes on to uh, talk about um, uh, chapter 16, it says Christ as an example of humility. um, He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the scepter and majesty of God, did not come in pomp in pride or arrogance, although he might have done so, but in lowly condition as the Holy Spirit had declared regarding him. Actually, I wanted to point that out because what you see here, you see our Lord Jesus Christ, you see the majesty of God, the Father, and then he's seen as the Holy Spirit declares. You see an example of Trinitarian language there in that chapter. Try to move along a little bit quicker here. Um, a few other things I found interesting. Chapter 32, we are not justified by our own works, but by faith, he says, Inasmuch as God had promised, thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven, all these, therefore, were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake but for, or for their own works, or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will. And we, too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom, our understanding, our godliness, our works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. So again, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, chapter 38, um, he says, Let the Let the strong not despise the weak, let not the weak and let the weak show respect unto the strong, let the rich man provide for the wants of the poor. And let the poor man bless God because he hath given him one by whom his need may be supplied. Let the wise man display his wisdom, not by mere words, but through good deeds. Let the humble not bear testimony to himself, but leave witness to be borne to him by one another. He, this one I highlighted because he talks about you've got rich, you've got poor, you've got smart, you've got not as smart. You've got all these different people serving the church. And he's saying, look, you're all equal, basically. You're all serving the body of Christ in one capacity or another. I found that uh, quite interesting. Um, in uh, 47, he says, Take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at this time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly under the inspiration of the Spirit. So he's basically saying first Corinthians, Second Corinthians were of the Spirit, Right similar to Peter's language about, um, you know, being the the scripture being led along by the spirit. Um, one more little thing I highlighted. He says, may God who seeth all things and who is ruler of all spirits and the Lord of all flesh, who chose our Lord Jesus Christ and us through him to be a particular people, grant to every soul that calleth upon his glorious and holy name, fear, patience, peace, long-suffering, self-control, purity, and sobriety to the well-pleasing of his name through our high priest and protector Jesus Christ by whom be uh, him glory and majesty and power and honor both now and forevermore. Sounds very similar to Paul. And then and they end it with, send back speedily to us in peace and with joy these are messengers to you. He lists a few people's names. He says that they may the sooner announce to us the peace and harmony we so earnestly desire and long for among you, and that we may the more quickly rejoice over the good order reestablished among you. Our grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with all everywhere that are called of God through him, by whom be to him glory, honor, power, majesty, and eternal dominion from everlasting to everlasting. So he's, it's writing inspectantly. You know, when y'all have restored order and peace, let us know. <laughs> and uh, and then obviously giving glory to God for it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, thank you for your word. I thank you for our elders and just how you have called them to lead this flock. And I thank you for uh, great men of history who sought to honor you, to be biblically minded, and to um, to just lead the church according to your word. I thank you for this day. I ask you to bless uh the sermon, and, and, and the worship we offer to you, Lord. May you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.